Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Pop Culture Double Date. Um, this week we are talking about Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 3, The Long Night. Um, I'm joined tonight by Anoja, Maggie and Gerald. Say hello everyone. Hello. Hi. Anoja. Sorry, mixing it up. Um, and like as usual, this is going to be a full spoilers podcast as, as all our podcasts are. Um, yeah, so look, it's been a couple of days since um, episode three of season eight came out. And so we've had a little bit of time to ruminate on it. And um, we've also had a bit of time to look at the online reactions to this episode. And it feels like even though the battle ended on the screen, the battle rages on the internet (laughs) about whether this was a good episode or a bad episode. It's, I mean, as is so common with the internet, um, people are massively polarized and they either say that this was a masterwork or absolute rubbish um i think at pop culture double date we'll probably um end up (laughs) saying that it's somewhere in between but uh, like my understanding is that within our group also there's varying views about um the quality of this episode and um whether this episode bodes well for the rest of the season so i think this week we're going to spend most of our time basically talking about our impressions of the episode and what we liked and what we didn't like. Um, I'll, I'll just give um, our listeners a really quick summary of what happened during the episode first so that we're all kind of on the same page. I mean, you should remember this given this this is a spoilers episode and you really shouldn't be listening unless um, you want spoilers. But, I mean, obviously this episode is about the Battle of Winterfell, um, you know, like we see there's a huge battle, the, the, uh, Melisander comes back and basically lights all the Dothraki swords on fire. They charge in against the zombies, basically get annihilated. And then basically there's this huge grinding battle when waves after waves of zombies crash against the human defenders of Winterfell. We have dragon battles with the Night King on Undead Viserion fighting Rhaegal and Rhaegal being flown by Jon Snow and um, Drogon being flown by Daenerys. There's a huge battle. You know, um, at the same time, we see all our favorite characters fighting and trying to survive. We see that in the crypts, as was expected, the dead came back from the dead and started attacking people in the crypts. Um, We saw... You know, Arya fighting off um, undead. Um, yeah, we, we saw a lot of fighting, a lot of very desperate fighting. We saw um, characters die. We saw Ed die in the fighting. We saw basically the Night King get to a hair's touch of Bran in the Godswood. We saw Jon trying to get to Bran, but failing. And then ultimately, who kills the Night King? Well, firstly, we see quite a heroic sacrifice by Theon Greyjoy, so death number two. And then we also see a heroic sacrifice by Sir Jorah Mormont, protecting Daenerys to the very end against um, zombies. And then right at the end, when everything seems lost and the human defenders seem like they are about to be overwhelmed, Arya Stark jumps out of nowhere and um, 
does a funky knife trick and kills the Night, Night King, uh, which is a major moment, a major, major, major moment, obviously. And as was anticipated, the death of the Night King basically destroys the army of the dead. So I think that's a rough plot summary, right? So clearly quite a momentous episode from a Game of Thrones perspective, given the threat of the Night King and the threat of the army of the undead. Um, yeah. Um, but obviously, as I said, the ba- battle continued to rage on the internet. Um, this did end up being quite a controversial episode. So why don't we just open it up to the floor? Like, did we like this episode or did we agree? Did we agree with the haters or did we agree with the lovers on the internet? Andrew, why don't you shoot first? Because I know that you feel quite strongly about this episode. So I loved it. It is my, it's in my top five. Um, I am completely, like, I, I hear what everyone is saying about the issues they have. For many of those issues I can be sympathetic to. But I think there was so much that was fantastic about this episode. Um, you know, and what, I don't know how we can ask for perfection out of a, out of a TV show episode. This was fantastic. I think it delivered in so many ways. Um, so should we talk about what we liked about the episode or just, just brief impressions to start with. Look, why don't, why don't you shoot with what you liked about the episode, and then as we go around the table, we can kind of add to that. Um, yeah. Sure. So my absolute favourite thing about this episode was the way that it ended. Now, we all talk about how Game of Thrones is all about subverting typical fantasy tropes and subverting our expectations, and it couldn't have done that any more, this episode, than they did with the way the Night King was finally killed. Now we all, we've all kind of equated subversion with killing characters off, and I don't know why we've done that. Because yeah, it did subvert our expectations, and it did subvert the, the tropes earlier on when we killed off well who we thought were major characters. But if we keep doing that over and over again, that's not subversion because we're all expecting it. And let's face it, the whole of fandom was expecting massive deaths this episode, and if they delivered on that. I'm not sure that it would have really have had the emotional weight that we all think it would have had because we were expecting it so much. Um, what I did love is that they completely subverted the hero trope in a different way. Let's face it, right? We were all, at least most of us, were expecting either Jon Snow or Daenerys, maybe Bran to be responsible for the Night King's death. And for some reason, we didn't really see that it could be Arya when, if you think about it now, this entire show has been setting her up to be the best person to take him down, maybe the only person to take him down. And I say this because we've seen her train with the absolute best to be a fighter and an assassin. Syria Pharrell, Dakin Hagar, uh, the Hound, Brienne. Now, her training in the Temple of Death with Jack and Hagar, this was not something that we just glossed over. Much to Gerald's dismay, we spent a whole (laughs) season, okay, at this Temple of Death watching this. She didn't just go in and then come out a trained assassin. We saw her go through the works. She lost her eyesight so that she could learn to make better use of her other senses. We saw her get beaten down over and over and over again. Um, you know, she struggled and we saw her get stronger and more skilled with time. Um, so they invested in that. Even that line that Melisandre kind of says to her, you will, you will, I'll, you will shut brown eyes, green eyes and blue eyes forever. 
Like, they put that in there for a reason. They're not just going, oh, that was useful that we said that all those episodes ago. They put that in there for a reason because it's an odd thing to say and it's also odd to say forever, you know. They planned this from the outset and they really did set her up. We saw her kill, you know, we saw her kill um, all of the, um, oh, what are they called, the... Um, <laughs> The people at the the people who murdered her mother and her brothers. Yeah, the phrase. Now Gerald often refers to her as a psychopath, which I think is a bit harsh because, to be honest, she's not psychopathic. She doesn't kill willy nilly for pleasure. She kills the people who she wants dead because they have done such such cruel things to her and her loved ones. And when we see other people do that, we don't call them psychopaths. We don't call Jamie Lannister a psychopath, you know, because he kills people and doesn't have an emotional reaction from it. Um, so, you know, we've, we've seen her train to be this massive, kick-ass, stealth assassin. And I want to say that another reason why I think it's great that it was her is that in some ways Jon Snow he's un he's an unlikely human being right people are not like Jon Snow he is the ultimate hero but normal human beings are not like that they don't go through the kind of tragedies and pain that he's gone through and still come out of it a pure human um Arya is much more true to reality in that she went through massive trauma and she was affected by it. Her humanity was really shut down by what she went through and it really took coming back to Winterfell and reconnecting with her loved ones to get even a semblance of that back. So I think for her to be the hero, again, it's a subversion of the hero trope and it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic thing. I also think that it's fantastic because they set up the dagger move. I don't know if you guys recognize it, but the drop bait hands plunge in is a move that she used with Brienne of Tarth when they were dual battling, you know, in one of the one of the scenes in Winterfell. So we've actually seen her use that move before. They set this up perfectly you know and i saw i seeing her journey just in that episode alone was beautiful there she is kicking ass fierce as anything um using that that's that's that that spear that breaks in two she's doing an amazing job but then suddenly she falls she takes a blow to the head and she loses her weapon and suddenly she's disoriented she feels fear she looks terrified she doesn't know what she's doing but you see her sneaking around the library. They can't hear her. her the, the, the droplets of blood from her head make more of a sound than she does. So just establishing that she is super stealth assassin ninja warrior. Um, she's terrified. The hound rescues her. Um, uh, what's his face? Um, rescues her. What's his Beric. name? I can't remember his name. Beric Dondarrion. Yes, the barricade. Beric <laughs> fulfills his prophecy, rescuing her. And, you know, she's terrified. And she, she needs Melisandre to remind her who she is by, you know, t t reminding her of this prophecy, but also saying the words that Syria Pharrell used to say to her um, to inspire her to go out. And, yeah, I just think it was it was fantastic. And I just want to say, it couldn't have been anybody else because the Night King was never, ever, ever going to allow hand-on-hand -hand combat. When has he ever allowed anyone to get near him in that way? He has this posse of people around him. He can raise the dead. And I thought it was hilarious when John, you know, is going after him and he thinks he's going to have a ground combat session with him. And the Night King's like, no, I'm not going to do that. 
yeah, deal with all these dead zombies. I'm not going to do that with you. So he was never going to allow that to happen. So we didn't need a brave warrior like John. We needed a stealth ninja assassin like Arya. She's the only one who could who could have done it. And I don't think she came out of nowhere. We saw her run off. We knew she was going somewhere, but for some reason, our minds just would not allow us to contemplate the idea that she was going to be the one that came in at the end to, to, to save the day. You know, we're still waiting for John to somehow do it. So I think that subversion was absolutely amazing. Um, I'm not going to go on. I'm just going to pick one more thing I want to talk about because otherwise I could, I could honestly talk about this episode for 10 hours. One more thing to talk about is that I love what this, what this show has done with the idea of prophecy. So a lot of the internet is all, well, is Arya Azora high? Is she the princess that was promised? Like, what about the prophecy? Blah, blah, blah. I think what this show has told us time and time again is that in this world, prophecy is real. Okay, people do do can see the future, and a lot of what they say comes true. But you are going to screw yourself over if you think that you can take a prophecy and interpret it correctly. We've seen Melisandre fall on, you know, just fall over trying to do that with Stannis, and again with John. Um, we cannot interpret prophecy, and to think that we can put all our eggs in the basket of prophecy is a massive mistake, and we will we will lose by doing that. And I think that is excellent because it kind of tells you that, yes, you can have the spiritual stuff like prophecy, but you don't dedicate your life and all your expectations around it. You live your life and you do what you need to do. So I loved that about it. So, look, I loved a lot about it, but I'm going to stick with those two things and just just, just turn it over to one of you guys. Okay, look, why don't I go next? So, uh, look, I, I have to say I am not one of those people that had an issue with Arya being the one to shiv the Night King. Um, yeah, like, I, I guess my issue with the Night King was not necessarily about who killed him, but what he ended up being, right? But, um... <laughs> lame! Look, he was lame! <laughs> I, I think... Look, what did I like? Let, let, but let's start on the positives, right? What did I love about this episode? It was intense. This was a super intense episode. The yes. cinematography was amazing, right? Like, it was beautifully shot. The scene when the Dothraki ride out there with their swords on fire. Like, amazing. Th there's just a lot. Of, I mean, you can tell the effort and the time and the money that went into all these sets, all these set pieces. All these, like, crazy shots. Everybody's complaining that it was really dark. Yes, it was really dark. Yes, I had to turn up my brightness about 20 points to <laughs> figure out what was going on a little bit. But I can't deny that that was a stylistic choice. And I applaud them for making that hard stylistic choice because it made the lit elements, it made the fire so much more intense. And I thought that was intentional and I thought it was good because specifically this was a fight about you know, the night and the light, right? So, yeah, having those two contrasting points I thought was important. Um, yeah, I definitely felt like it was a super intense battle at all points during the during the entire battle. You felt like people were in peril, right? Like, it, yes. it, it, generally, it genuinely created a sense of peril. I thought that was amazing, right? Um, I, I, I think the other thing that I actually really enjoyed about this episode was actually um, how they use Melisandre. <laughs> I was really surprised 
that she... I guess I shouldn't have been surprised because you knew that she was coming back. But from a character perspective, she was absolutely the MVP of the night, right? Like, if they were playing as a team, Melisandre carried the team for most of the... I mean, I'm going get... to say Arya and <laughs> Melisandre was excellent. Yeah, I, I would... So I know that Arya probably sunk the final three-point shot, but Melisandre was the one who went around the field and basically set everything up, right? Like, she... Also... <laughs> Also, the acting job when she walks out to the trenches to light the fire and she keeps saying the spell over and over again, but nothing is happening. And her voice starts yes. to shake with yeah. fear and her eyes, just the terror in her eyes. And she like, oh, God, I heard that again today. And it was just it was fantastically done. Yeah, I agree. Like what Carice Van Houten did with Melisandre. That scene in particular is excellent, right? Because in that, you see someone who is faithful, but then at that moment, you need to perform a miracle, right? You need to perform mm. magic, right? And, you know, the dead are coming over those trenches, and the only thing holding them back is a very thin line of Unsullied. And she's sitting there, you know, willing this thing to happen, right? So I agree. Like, there were a lot of scenes with Melisandre that were just really, really, really well done. Um, yeah, not, not, I mean, the final scene with her just walking out into the, um, like walking out into the field, taking the gem off and just disappearing, I, I mm. thought it was a great counterpoint as well to the way the Night King disappears, because in some ways she is like the Lord of Light's equivalent of yeah. a white walker almost, right? Like, because yeah. she is also impossibly old and held together by, by magic, essentially. So, yeah. And impossible to kill, because, um, you know, they, they tried... Who, what was this? I, I can't remember anyone's name. Davos tried to poison her in one of the earlier yeah, seasons. Yeah, and she just and walks it off. Right? Yeah, yeah, she... Well, either that or she knew, but, like, it's like she, she clearly has some sort of magic holding herself together, right? So... Yeah, like, I, I thought, um, I really enjoyed the character of Melisandre. I enjoyed the level of intensity. I enjoyed, um, I thought the acting was pretty pretty solid. Like, there was a level of desperation. Um, there's a scene towards the end, um, like, where there's a single shot of Jon Snow basically running through Winterfell to try to get to Bran in the Godswood. Um, yeah, with the dragon. Yeah, and then there's this moment when the bodies just start falling from the sky. There's, like, ash falling from the sky, and the bodies start falling from the sky as well as the zombies crash through the roof and stuff. That was a level of intensity that was amazing, right? I really, really enjoyed that. Um, the acting in that scene was amazing. There's a scene where, basically, Sam is lying on the ground, and he's stabbing around him, and he's just crying, right? Like, I thought, mm. wow, good on good on the actor who portrayed Sam, because that, that was a level of, like, intensity and realism that, um, yeah, w was was really quite nice. So, I would and say... And that scene where John sees him, and turns around, looks at him, and then keeps going. Yeah, yeah. Like, he makes a choice to leave Sam to die, pretty much. Yeah. It's, that's, that's a huge call. Yeah, yeah. So, look, I, I agree. Those those were my positives, right? Um, I'll, I'll throw it around to everyone else for the positives before I um, start on my negatives. But, Jerry, Mags, who who wants to talk about the positives next? Um, I'll, I'll talk about the positives. Um, for me, the absolute unambiguous winner and MVP of the episode was not any one of the characters, but rather Ramin Javadi, the composer of the score, 
The work he did on this episode was absolutely stellar. The piano piece or the piano-based piece that conclude that accompanies the final 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes of the episode leading up to the death of the white king, of the night king, I think sensational and cut so beautifully with the, uh, with the rest of the show. Oh, Jerry, you've got a show and tell musical number for us. I put that on for you, darling. I put that on for you. Go on. Well, I mean, well, that's totally, that's totally put me off my game. Um, I totally forgot what I was going to say. Sorry, guys. Notice, notice the production, the production values we put into this episode. This is double our usual budget. So, so. If, 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 if I may be permitted to continue without interruption or obstruction. <laughs> Go on. Um, so I thought his work was stellar. It was, the piece was every bit as good as the piece that opens uh, the season six finale, The Winds of Winter. And it was haunting, resonant, and um, provided a wonderful counterpoint to the images on the screen, particularly because there was such effective use of the of slow motion in rendering the Night King's journey towards Bran. There were moments, of course, of absolute transcendent visual beauty in this episode, in an episode that for me, for the most part, vi- was visually a complete and utter mess, but there were moments of stunning beauty. I think the, the shot of the two dragons above the clouds um, was stunning, particularly since all the shots uh, featuring the dragons prior to that were impossible to make out. So I thought that the, 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 the contrast between the clarity and beauty of that scene was highlighted um, and stood out uh, against what had preceded it. And as, as you mentioned, Darren, the ride of the Dothraki, the lighting of, the, of their swords by Melisandre, and that Mexican wave effect of the torch spreading across the vista of the crowd was stunningly poetic, and the way in which the annihilation of the Dothraki is portrayed, namely by the snuffing out of these lights, was similarly poetic and very economical. So that says, I think, I think something about the the eye of Miguel Sapochnik, the director of this episode. He's directed some of the big battle episodes in the past, in particular Hard Home and um, The Battle of the Bastards. I think he's done... This is probably not his best work on the show this episode, but um, there are moments when he demonstrates an almost unmatched talent for rendering action in the most economical and poetic way, and moments like that were, were a demonstration of that. I think it was completely appropriate and fitting that Arya Stark was the one who killed the Night King, principally because, as Anna noted, this is a subversion of um, expectations. Um, and even though uh, I don't think the show is all that committed, is as committed as the novels are to um, connecting the events of the story with prophecies, um, I think the subversion of expectation uh, was what rescued what had otherwise become a somewhat tired pattern with the battle episodes in this show, namely that the outcome always rests upon a last-minute twist of fate. Now, I agree for all those who say that Aya Stark coming out of nowhere was a deus ex machina. I actually disagree with that. 
I don't think it was Deus Ex, I don't think it was a Deus Ex Machina for precisely the reasons that Anninger uh, discussed, namely it had been set up and seeded at various points in the show. And whilst I don't think it completely makes up for the way in which the Aya story arc was completely stagnant in season five, I thought this moment was very satisfying and I I must confess I let out a big cheer for Aya Stark when, when she shivved the Night King. So I was I was delighted to see that. And um I was delighted to see that once again all my criticisms of Jon Snow as a military tactician and a leader were borne out. He is <laughs> utterly hopeless. And so it was good to see someone else actually get the job done. And and for that you know, Aya Stark is to be is to be congratulated, um, and I think I think there is plenty to be said about the length of the episode and whether it was justified. I thought the pace of the episode was was really excellent. At, at no point did the intensity flag. As I said before, I think visually. Often it descended into an absolute mess and sort of Michael Bay style incoherence, but despite that, um, the the episode didn't flag. And finally, because um, I've always thought she was the best character in the show, um, R.I.P. Liana Mormont, you will be missed. You were the fiercest and the best among us, and uh, the way you went out was a tribute uh, to your character and your strength. <laughs> Well, I mean, the Mormons are basically done. This was a... They're done. <laughs> this, was a like apocaly- this was an apocalypse episode for the Mormons and the Dothraki. Dalek, <laughs> um, Dalek, why couldn't you have said that with Ramin Javadi playing in the background? Think about how much like, more powerful that would have been. <laughs> it was too distracting. <laughs> Mags? Maggie? Yeah, so... Um, what else could I add to this? Um, well, for me, um, what I really enjoyed about the episode was um, I think they did a really great job of um, creating moments of what felt like insurmountable futility, I suppose, for the human characters in the story. Um, you know, those moments where they're shooting, they kind of drift to one character and another that you've grown to know and love and follow throughout the the seven seasons up to now um and you know like thormont is it thormont um torment torment the wildling standing on the pile of bodies hacking away um and trying madly to stay alive brienne and jamie lannister up against the battlement um fighting with one hand with this rising you know bodies of dead undead around them I thought they did an excellent job at creating that sense of futility um, some of the moments that I thought were really uh, amazing and sort of spine tingling were the scenes where they created almost like a hyper real sense about it so we've talked about the Melisandre scenes, the Dothraki writing um, I thought that moment when the Night King uh, was walking to um Winterfell, and he stops and turns around and he looks at John running towards him, and he makes the freshly dead rise again, and consequently, you know, it happens throughout the entire Winterfell uh, battle scene. 
I thought that was a fantastic moment. Um, and it really made you question whether or not, um, you know, the, the characters would survive and how they would. Um, the Night King scene with Bran when he enters um, the, the Weirwood, I thought that was fantastic. Um, and as, um, as Gerald was saying, the, the shot of the dragons flying above the clouds I thought was really beautiful and, a, and one of those high fantasy moments mm. in the... Yeah in, a sh- yeah, in a show that often hasn't had those high fantasy moments, it was nice to have, like, dragons fighting together, right? Like, it's, like, mm. legit high fantasy. So, yeah, definitely yeah. that was different, yeah. Um, the other two scenes that I quite liked was the crypts coming alive. I thought that was super intense. And to do that in, in quite a, con- like, tight, constrained place, revealed a lot of, I think, what... You know, people were talking about in the uh, <laughs> post um, episode two, um, and then the library scene with um, Arya, um, which felt more like a sort of zombie horror movie. Um, I thought they did that quite well because it went from sort of you know the the raging battle outside to this very quiet, eerie um, sense in the the library scene. I thought that transition was quite dramatic and worked quite well. Um, so those are those were the bits of the um, episode that I really liked. I thought there were some incredibly dramatic moments. They had some incredibly clutch moves. For me, my favourite clutch move was the unemployment shanking of the of the um, giant, um, and I thought that was a fitting end for her as well. Um, yeah, Dan. Yeah. And ha- also, how can you before, not all before like? Anywhere else. Jumps in. I just want to say, darling, there's another reason for not wanting to have Jamin Javadi uh, <laughs> <laughs> playing over um, over over any one of us, and that is that we don't have a license to use any of that music. So oh, we it'll be fine. It'll oh, don't be worry, fine. Jerry. What are they going to do? Are they going to demonetize us? <laughs> <laughs> Are they gonna de- you can't demonetize nothing. Don't worry about this. There's no damage. There's no damage. There a, I don't know, but there could be a cease and desist letter requiring. Yeah, 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 I don't think so, bud. But <laughs> anyway, also don't forget, uh, don't forget, don't forget how awesome was Daenerys's failed Dracarys moment. That was oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes. it's the one bit of personality we see out of the Night King, <laughs> <Yeah>. basically. When <laughs> he smiles! <laughs> yeah. This smirk, it was his version of flipping the bird. Like, <laughs> who knew? Yeah, but he missed with the javelin, which I thought was disappointing, given how accurate he was previously. But he missed point blank, basically, with the javelin. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I felt like the javelin throw was almost a, like a troll. He was like, you know what? I'll just give it a go. Whatever. You know? um, okay. So, look. I, look, I, I think there were, obviously, there were positive aspects about this episode. But I think the controversy online has... Let me see if I can summarize this. And I'm I, I don't. I'm not sure I'll get it all. But I think... Generally, people have complained about... I think probably the main complaint is the Night King's story and this idea that um, the army of the dead is supposed to be this overwhelming force and it just seems resolved in a very tidy little 
seems very tidily resolved and as a character we don't really understand the Night King any more or less really right like he has kind of just become a little bit of a bog standard sort of evil evil person right so yeah yeah. and they did tell us last episode that that's all it was going to be yeah which which I think look and I I thought it was lame even then yeah, so I think that there's that. So we can talk about that in a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, some people did complain about Arya being the one to kill her, but I think as a group, we're pretty comfortable. I mean, I at no point did I really feel like John or Danny had to kill the Night King. Um, I, I think the other sort of nitpick, nitpick with this, um, which I do agree with, and I'll probably elaborate on later, is, um, like the main character, the survival of the main characters, right? So I I guess Game of Thrones has quite a brutal pedigree in terms of killing off its main characters, and pretty much everybody that we saw last episode who had a drink of wine um, and heard pod songs survived, so there must have been something in that wine. (laughs) Hmm. um, Or pod. (laughs) Or pod. Pod as... I don't understand why this upsets everybody so much because in the in the first few seasons because they did kill off people we didn't expect to be killed off it created real stakes and we now do worry that anyone can be killed off so given that we have that genuine fear why does it matter that they didn't die okay so why don't we start on this one right because um I look I I can only speak from what what I I felt on this point um, I know that uh, the internet is full of much more extreme views on this, right? But basically, like... The internet is dark and full of terrors. It, it absolutely is dark and full of terrors. <laughs> but, um, look, I, I guess I didn't necessarily have an issue with them not dying. What I had an issue with was that throughout the episode, they kept basically making it seem like they had died. And then, okay, so there's two things here, right? Throughout the episode, they have all these bait-and-switch moments, right? So it looks like the main characters are standing on the front lines, right? Like, you have this very, the very mm. first scene, you have, like, Sam pushing his way to the front line, you see them True. all standing side by side. And this is a battle line with, like, 30,000 men. And it, it just feels a little bit like naff that all of the main characters are standing right next to each other, essentially, right? And then it's, it, they, they create this illusion that they're on the front line, and then they show the dead, like, crash into the front line. And it's like, yeah. basically, the front line is obliterated. There's no way you're getting out of that, right? But then yeah. instead of seeing, showing them clambering out of that front line and getting out... So I think the Battle of the Bastards did this really well because it shows True. how visceral it actually is, right? And how John has to clamber through these dead bodies to kind of survive. Yeah. But, like, these main characters basically teleport from parts of the battlefield, like, from the front line to kind of the back line and then inside the castle. And there's just this True. weird disconnect where there's so many people dying around you, right? There's, like, tens of thousands of people just getting hacked apart by zombies or whatever. And the main characters just, like... It's the plot armor on the characters just seemed thicker than any other episode. I think mm. I probably would have not minded that they survived if I think if if they had been a little bit more realistic about the way they'd portrayed 
where they were on the battlefield and that sort of thing, right? Because the battle... Because uh, it also creates this disconnect because the way um, Miguel Sopochnik directs this episode, he likes that sort of really visceral, like, realistic sense of battle, right? And so there's this disconnect when you have characters teleporting around within this, high, like, really realistic, stylized battle scene. So, um, yeah, so that for me was weird. And I think the cherry on top for that was, look, I love the scene at the end where John was going through the Winterfell, like, Winterfell Castle looking for Bran. I thought it was beautifully filmed. I loved all the raining zombies and stuff, right? But... One of the choices they made with that scene was basically that um, they wanted to show John seeing his friends or the people that he had built relationships with and actively turning away from them mm. to pursue Bran, right? And I can understand why they did that, right? They wanted to show that it was so important for John to reach the Godswood, he was willing to let the people that were important to yeah. him fall. Could- because he's always duty first. Yes, yes. So I agree with that. But a side effect of that is that what you see is because you're looking at things through John's eyes. So the side effect is that basically it seems like the only people left in the castle are his seven friends, right? Or the seven main characters or six or seven main characters that are left. So again, it creates this weird disconnect where it's like, this is supposed to be a battle with tens of thousands of people. Yet everywhere John looks, it seems, he only sees like, you know, the four or five people that we know. Do you, do you understand what I'm trying to get at here? Where yeah. it, it just feels really weird that... like It feels I know, unrealistic. Yeah, it feels unrealistic, right? It feels like something out of a TV show, which doesn't have that level of scale. But all through this battle, they've kind of created this level of scale. And then all of a sudden, it kind of feels like, oh, actually, no, this battle is actually only about these five or six people. So it's it feels really weird. I mean, it feels even weirder because... There's literally no survivors around these guys, right? So Torment is by himself. Like, I don't know if you guys ever played Doom, but the the like the poster for Doom, like Torment basically looked like he was standing in a poster of Doom. He was standing on a pile of bodies, like sort of killing undead left, right, and center, right? So it was it it just kind of yeah it it. it took me a little bit out of the moment. Like, that choice, I mean, that sort of compounded that sort of unrealistic aspect of the main characters jumping around. So that was my... Like, I didn't have an issue with the fact that Brienne or Jamie or Tormund or Pod didn't die. That was fine. It was more... The way it was portrayed that they didn't die made it really... Felt super out of place. Um, Mm. And look, look... the reality that, is that, that's probably that's probably the most sophisticated version of the argument that I've heard put anywhere. Yeah. And for my for my part, I, I just think the the show has kind of prompted in its audience a degree of bloodlust after mm-hmm. having killed so many major characters, starting with um, Ned Stark in Baylor in season one, and so. The audience has this expectation that the show, in order to maintain its quote-unquote integrity, has to stick to the same level of savagery, sadism and brutality that was previously attributed to it in seasons past. And I think, I, I, I genuinely believe that 
people who say that the show has gone soft because so often major characters come out alive of the, out of these major encounters, both in this episode and also in Beyond the Wall in the last season, are really speaking out of a sense of bloodlust. That is, for this show to be as hardcore as I think it should be and want it to be, it has to inflict major, grievous bodily harm, if not death, upon major characters. And the fact that it doesn't, I think, has prompted disappointment in the less savoury parts of the internet for precisely that reason, and maybe in the minds of some critics as well. Um, how do I feel about it personally? I don't think it's, I don't think it's that much of an issue. I suppose the way I've been affected by this particular issue is that the deaths that did occur, for the most part, because they were such relatively minor characters, left me pretty cold. Even a death as major as that of, say, Jorah Mormont, in the end, I didn't really care for. That might partly be a case of Jorah not being on screen very much this season, uh, but when he died in admittedly a very heroic manner, I just thought, well, kind of big whoop. I never really cared a great deal for him anyway. I thought he store, I felt a lot more, I felt a lot more for him when he had Greystone, for instance, than in the manner of his passing, simply for some for some strange reason. There was so much death and carnage in this episode, and for a car- and for the most major death to be his, I just well, thought Theon. it wasn't particularly affecting. Again, but I wasn't particularly affected by Theon's death either. I just thought, well, Th- Theon, I know the show wants to remind us from time to time of Theon's importance in the grand scheme of things, but... Since season three, he's been a bit of a punching bag. He was, he was Ramsey Bolton's punching bag for many seasons, and he's been this sort of itinerant coward for many seasons since, rediscovering a sense of courage in the final episode of the the last season. But but again, I don't find I don't find I didn't find his death particularly moving or affecting either. So the problem is not that the show didn't give us enough deaths of major characters. The problem is that the deaths that actually happened didn't land with as much of a punch as I think we would have wanted, simply because part of it's because these are minor characters, but part of it's also because not only are these minor characters, they're characters whose stories have ultimately bled into the background. You know, Jorah Mormont and Theon Greyjoy were very important characters in seasons one, two, and three, but as the in the case of Jorah, as... Uh, Daenerys surrounded herself with other advisors as she became more powerful, as she gathered around her an army, as she gathered around her the likes of Tyrion and Varys. Jorah's kind of disappeared a bit. And the fact that he's disappeared a bit is reflected, I think, in at least my response to his death. And so it's, it's only the, only the most affecting death in the entire episode for me and at the risk of repeating myself, was Leanna Mormont's. Not only because it was a pretty kick-ass death, but because, like, in her brief appearances uh, throughout the last two or three seasons, she has been fierce and memorable in a way that the likes of Theon and Jorah, I think, have struggled to be. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's bloodlust. I don't think that's the reason everybody wants death. I think that they just appreciated that finally there was a show that didn't put hero shields around its characters. 
Uh, it might be a bit of a disservice to a lot of the people who were disappointed at the lack of deaths to say that it was all driven by bloodlust. I think also, yeah, look, I think Gerald has definitely does also have a point, right? Because I, I do think there has been, there is an expectation that characters are going to die. But um, I also kind of feel that, especially for this episode, there was an expectation because it was... Because they I, set it up last episode. Yeah, they set it up so... It was, there was so last episode was so dour, right? Like, it was like it's everyone was... Very fatalistic. Yeah, and and then everybody who heard Pod's song basically got Pod Armor plus 100. <laughs> so, yeah, that was... Anyway, look, I, look I, I think at the end of the day... Um, well, actually, Mags, what, what did you think of this? Did you, did you did you feel like more people should have carked it? Did you feel that like less people carking it was actually a disservice to the episode, or did you not really get affected by this? And is this just an internet thing? Um, I mean, I thought it was weird that almost all the main characters survived, yet ninety nine percent of the rest of the people who were at Winterfell didn't. So it, for me, it was more. It just seemed unrealistic that surely there were other, you know, there were other people who were better fighters or um, were able to survive. Like it, it just didn't make much sense to me why, um, you know, this handful of people somehow managed to stay on top of the mound of bodies and and stay alive. Um, was it, it was it the skill? Was it luck? Was it just coincidence? Um, so, and for me, I think that questioning was more about, well, we're kind of in, we're in the middle of the season still, it's episode three, so we've got three more episodes left. Um, clearly it's a plot device to, to have these people continue on to fight, um, in the remaining battles ahead. So there must be some kind of fate that'll, that wait, awaits them in the fight for the Game of Thrones at King's Landing. So... Um, I guess for me, it was wrapped up a little bit with um, my disappointment in the Night King being killed in one episode in the middle of the final season. That felt quite anticlimactic. Um, and so, um, you know, the characters who I thought were going to to die in, in this episode, um, or at least in a battle against the epic battle of humanity against um, uh you know, this darkness, this supernatural darkness, um, it just added to that idea of, for me, the, the whole experience of the Night King being quite anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it wasn't... Uh, yeah. Daz, it, can, it, I, can I also... No, can no. I also note the weird racial politics of the people who died? Like, the brown people, namely the Dothraki and the Unsullied, and... The way they got wiped out so early in the front lines of the battle kind of reminded me of a scene. It was either in a South Park episode or the South Park movie where the U.S. Army goes to war and an order is issued that all the black, all the black people are to go to the front lines. Uh, it was just deeply, deeply bizarre. It seems to, it almost seems to be the case that the only brown people who survived the Battle of Winterfell are Grey Worm and Missandei. But it kind of looks and feels that way. That's just the show, though. All the all the people of colour are soldiers in this show, so they are basically disposable, you know, they're for battle. That's 
it's a problem with the show rather than this episode. No, that's true. Yeah, well, but those, by the those... looks of it, but I mean, to Mags's point, by the looks of it, like, if you, I mean, and this is the problem with that final scene with Jon Snow, it looks like literally everyone is dead. Like, it literally looks like the only people left at Winterfell are like six guys. Like, when he runs through the castle, it literally yeah. looks like there are only six men alive. Mm. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, I don't really know. I mean, look, I, I think another major gripe of this... Sh- so, look, let's let's move on to the kind of the, the other big gripes, right? So, I think... Oh, sorry, I just wanted to... Just one point with the Unsullied, though. A shout-out to their incredible discipline. <laughs> like, you know that <laughs> scene where Grey Worm has to make the horrible choice of creating the trench mm. um, and then his guys are just there holding being, formation yeah holding formation being super disciplined like that was for me that was another clutch moment anyway yeah yeah yeah, yeah. look yeah. the unsullied it's like the line no, no go it's like the line from Hamilton immigrants we get the job done <laughs> well, <laughs> um, not today Satan not today <laughs> um, but yeah like yeah the the unsullied were Pretty, pretty awesome. But I mean, at this point, basically, it seems like Daenerys has no army. Um, mm. She's thrown. Look, I, I think this gets to one of the other gripes of this episode, which is kind of the, um, <laughs> the tactics that were employed. <laughs> right? I know that. Mm. Like, look, no one here is a military tactician, right? But at the same time, this idea of using your light cavalry as the opening gambit and charging them straight into a block of zombies seems just... It doesn't make sense, right? Like, it doesn't mm. make sense. But I think visually, the opening scene with the Dothraki charging was beautifully shot. But I think even... Mags, you turned... Like, did you did you make this comment to me when we were watching the episode about the Dothraki charging in? Oh, yeah, I just, I started shouting. It wasn't to you. I was shouting to the TV. What the hell are you doing? (laughs) I just started shouting, stop, stop. (laughs) What are you doing? And then the the lights went out and I looked at Dan and went, see? (laughs) But see, this is is a thing, right? Like, it didn't seem like anybody had sounded the charge or anything. It was just like... They decided to charge. It was so bizarre. Like, <laughs> but I tell you what, you know, way to set up that feeling of futility really early on. Mm. Like, they that was just a classic. You know, like the the way that they did it, like visually, it it just sent signals about just how futile this battle was really going to be. Yeah, I, I think I think that the comment about the tactics is similar to. You, do you remember in the Battle of Bastards when Rickon gets killed by, um, what's his face? Ramsay shoots the arrow at him, right? And the meme is basically, well, he should have just run in a zigzag. And absolutely, like, everyone who was watching that scene was just like, what are you doing? Why are you running a straight line with a guy with an arrow? Why don't you just run in a zigzag and you'll survive? And I think with this battle as well, there were so many decisions where you're just like, who was the one who form the strategy for this battle because that guy needs to be sacked it doesn't make sense what you guys are doing right like they build this trench but then they 
have no further defences for the actual wall. I mean, they're living in a medieval society. You would think they would have, like, pitch or rocks or stuff to throw down the wall. But instead, they just kind of, like, wait for the zombies to climb right up to the edge of the wall so they can hit them with the sword. It's just like, <laughs> what are you guys doing? Like, this is insane. Um, yeah. Like, so, again, there were these moments where, like... The tactics just seem so out of place that you're kind of taken a little bit out of it. And you have moments where you're screaming at the TV screen, asking what is actually going on here, right? So, um, yeah, I don't know if you guys felt that, but I, I definitely had that feeling throughout this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they were completely of a piece with the stupidity <laughs> of sending women and children to the crypt. I mean... <laughs> When you realise that these people are so hopeless and so stupid as to have sent all these people down to the crypt, this is in circumstances where Jon Snow himself at Hardhome witnessed the Night King raising a great mass of people back from the dead, and he sends women and children to the Night King. He signs off on that idea. It, it, it seems completely and perfectly explicable and in keeping with that, that decision after decision after decision in this episode by way of tactics or strategy, uh, was stupid. So, uh, yes, it was, It was. I didn't find it particularly frustrating because I have long since accommodated my, myself to the notion that Jon Snow, top bloke, crap leader. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm just, I'm cool with the people who are just complaining about uh, tactics and strategy in the show. Guys, it's a TV show. It's a TV show where one of the characters, the ostensible hero, is kind of dumb. And he's been dumb for a long time. He was particularly dumb at the Battle of the Bastards. And the fact that he's dumb in this episode doesn't surprise me, isn't grounds for complaint. But, you know, look, the point, though, you make is fair, because John is consistently dumb throughout every battle he's been in. Right, and he is also dumb in this battle, and he's actually highly in. If you actually think about it, he's actually also highly ineffectual in this battle as well. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> he doesn't do anything. He gets like locked down by an uh, blind undead dragon at the <laughs> at the end, right? Like. <laughs> It's actually like if you actually look at what he does, it's actually hilarious how. Ineffectual he actually is. I think the little cherry on top of how ineffectual he actually is is that he decides to ask his dog to go running with the cavalry in the initial charge. Why? Why is he sending his dog with the rest of the cavalry? What the hell? Um. Anyway, folks, we're going to get another. We're going to get another Darren. Pet that dog, rant. Pet that dog. Absolutely. Pet the dog. Why is he pet the dog? Um. Okay, so... No, I agree with you, and that's why it's all the more fitting and appropriate that Aya was the one to kill the Night King, because, let's face it, it was never going to be John. It was just never going to be him. He was just too dumb to do it. Yeah, it feels like John's only tactic is, like, come at me one-on-one and I'll fight you in a sword duel and I'll beat you. That's basically his ultimate tactic, right? Like, he doesn't come at it in terms of, well, you know, I should move these troops around this way. It's basically, it will always come down to a sword duel, which I guess suits his character because he's kind of, like, straightforward and honourable in that way. But it's actually kind of, it's also incredibly stupid in a battle with, like, tens of thousands of people. Um, 
Yeah. Um, Jerry, do you want to have your little rant about the Night King? Let, let's talk about the Night King and whether we thought that whole Army of the Dead thing was a little bit disappointing or not. Yeah, sure. Um, I know there have been some who say the Night King being killed in this episode is the show's last attempt at surprising its audience in the same way as killing Ned Stark at the end of season one. And I kind of get that. I do respect that argument. I see the force of it. But at the same, what, but at the same time, what gets me about the, the killing off of the Night King in this manner is not its abruptness or the fact that it happened halfway through the final season. What is, what has disturbed me about the Night King is that he's just so utterly inconsequential and insignificant. He has no real significant motivation to speak of. He has, he never had a real plan beyond wiping everything out for the purpose of wiping out Bran. Why he was particularly keen on wiping out Bran is explained in the last episode, but I've never, I, 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 one week on, I still struggle to find it a satisfying explanation. The truth is, the Night King is no more sophisticated a villain than the Xenomorphs in, in the Alien series. And that, that's what, that's what finds me frustrating. And the, the interesting thing is, the Night King, particularly in the lead up to this final season, has been the subject of much theorizing. Was he a Targaryen? Was he a Stark? Was he a Stark and a Targaryen? Is he Bran? Um, yes, yes, the and, Bran theory. <laughs> and, 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 you know, there's been so much theorizing about it. And, and the show has just said, well, he's none of these things. He's even less than what you th- – he's even less than meets the eye. And in that respect, the fact that he, they've, they've hinted at this mythology behind the Night King, they've even hinted at various connections with the Night King and other aspects of the show and then offered us nothing – I, I think the Night King is the lost finale of Game of Thrones. And its I, I don't think it's being too harsh to say that he was just a complete waste of time. Uh, now, it's probably good that the show has left him behind. If he is so utterly inconsequential, it's a good thing that the show has left him behind at this point so that it can concentrate on the conflicts and the characters we actually care about. Uh, because th- there's just no point with hanging on to him as the main antagonist of the show when there was absolutely nothing there in terms of um, interesting storytelling. I think the significance of the Night King is that he brought all of the main characters together and he united them. You know, he was the common enemy. I think that's the role because this show's never really been... Look, the books might be different, but the show has never really been about the Night King. He's always been someone that's been on the edges... Not that much screen time has really been devoted to that. The show is more about the internal politics of Westeros. Um, and so, yeah, I think his main role is the external threat that was going to unite all the characters that we loved to um, finally take us to the final battle with Cersei. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's that's part of what's so disappointing, that he was just no more than a plot, kind of a plot device plot rather device. than a character. Yeah, yeah, yeah agreed. Mags, Mags, did you have any thoughts on the Night King? Did you feel like his resolution was satisfactory? Yeah, I mean, I think for me it was more, we kind of, particularly last season, were leading up to this big battle, and here we are, and yeah, I I thought it would go on for a bit longer, maybe two episodes, but yeah. The other thing I was thinking about was Bran, um, did he know that this was where it was all heading to? Because you know how at the beginning of the episode he kind of nods at 
Gen one. Who was it? Tyrion. He, he not said um Sam. Was it Sam or was it Tyrion? Mm. Oh yeah, you're right. It could be Tyrion. Yeah. Yeah. This Tyrion. sort of this significant nod, and he kind of gives Theon before he he dies a little pat on the head. Almost. He did give Arya the cat's paw dagger. Yeah. Yeah. That too, as well. So. I mean, does, does Bran actually know what's going on? Well, he says he all? can't see the future, but it seems like he's doing stuff that suggests that he can see the future. Look, well, he can see something. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> th- there's an open question about what Bran was doing for 90% of this episode. Right? <laughs> the joke is basically he wired into some ravens and just, like, hung out <laughs> for, like, the I entire know. time. And just, like... <laughs> it was like, what are you wagging into, mate? Like, what... <laughs> The, the zombies are right at your door. What are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah, he, yeah, Brown is like the soldier who sort of spends the entire battle smoking pot and having and had just chilling out and having a cool time. He probably just wanted to like avoid conversation with Theon. <laughs> with Theon, would have been yeah. <laughs> until the very end. Yeah, it would have been, yeah, been, been a tad awkward, I imagine, having a long D and M with Theon in those circumstances, particularly given uh, the history they've shared. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I think I, I definitely agree with Gerald in that I, I do feel a little bit let down that they didn't really go into any more of the Night King's background. From a motivation perspective, he really was a cartoon 2D villain, right? Like, he was not a Thanos. He definitely was not a Thanos. So, um, yeah, I was definitely a little bit disappointed in that. I, I think also the disappointment is also with this idea that, like... The first scene of Game of Thrones, right? In the very first episode, the scene is about the White Walkers, right? It's about the guy who deserts the Night's Watch because he finds the White Walker menace, essentially, Mm -hmm. right? And so, like, the expectation that's kind of been set up is that the White Walkers are the real enemy here, right? And that they will be the ones that push the realms to the absolute edge, right? Like, there's, like, I've always felt like that underlying this show, there's this, there's this, this, there's this sense of, well, there's all this politics and all this type of stuff, but, you know, when, like, all of that is kind of baloney when the real heavy stuff hits, right? And the Night King Mm. is the real heavy stuff. And so, obviously, when you get to that real heavy stuff, you want to kind of have have some sort of understanding of, like, why is this happening? What is this, right? And instead, the Night King almost gets portrayed as, and I think Gerald touched on this, like, it's almost just like a force of nature rather than a actual character. It almost feels like a tsunami or something like that, that, like, people have to deal with, essentially, right? And then Hmm. once it's done, that's it and the end. But if you think about it, there's, like, this is, like, what he's done up to this point in terms of, like, breaking the wall and then, like, and then basically the entirety of John's focus for the first seven, for the entire eight seasons has basically just been on this guy, right? And so for that to just kind of end so abruptly with so little additional explanation just feels yeah it, it it doesn't feel satisfying but at the same time like i mean mags makes makes the point that oh like maybe it should have gone on for two episodes or and i can understand that right because basically all through this this show we've been told 
about the long knife, right? You know, in the first few episodes, old Nan tells Bran that the first long night lasted for generations, right? And then, mm. and this is built up to be as horrifying and as terrible as that first long night. But it ends up literally it was only last, 90 minutes. Yeah, it was only 90 minutes. So <laughs> from, for, for that, from that perspective, like while I can understand, like, so while I don't necessarily agree with the idea that you could have stretched this on for two episodes, um, mainly because there wouldn't have been anyone alive <laughs> if they did another 90-minute battle scene. But, like, at the same time, it's like, well, it feels anticlimactic because you've been building this up and, that like, it's night that lasts for generations, but it, it's actually night that lasts for 90 minutes and that was kind of it. And it was just one big battle at the end. So, yeah, like... I, I definitely I, I can understand the sense of disappointment around that, right? Now the problem is that if you were in the writer's shoes, what do you do instead in this position, right? Fine, you probably potentially could have fleshed out the story of the Night King, give him some sort of motivation, that sort of thing, right? But at the same time, <laughs> like how how do you write this? Do you, do you write it that the dead rampage all the way down to King's Landing? I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know if that would have been more satisfying. Or no. Not, so yeah. no. I think you, you you highlight a problem, Darren. That is that the show is in a rush to wrap up. Benioff and Benioff and Weiss. I think Benioff, Benioff and Weiss are, are pretty keen to to move on to their next project, whatever it may be. And so the show is moving at a at a far greater clip than it was in previous seasons in order to get to particular places. And I think in amidst all that. One of the casualties of this pace, this increased pace, has been the story of the White Walkers and the Night Kings. The 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 showrunners are not particularly interested in developing it beyond um, having the Night King as some admittedly cool, scary-looking generic villain. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess that's that was that was my. I think that was the real the complaint about the Night King. Um, was there anything else that we wanted to talk about in relation to this episode? Jerry, Mags, did you guys have any other sort of grievances you wanted to air about this episode? Or <laughs> yeah, I, just, I just wanted to highlight how difficult it was to follow parts of it. Mm. There's been a lot of complaining about the, the, the way the episode was lit. I think the issue isn't so much the way the episode was lit as it is the, choi- the, the choice of shots and the um, quick cutting. So... Uh, we had a lot of close-ups in the in the in the midst of the battle, and we had a lot of quick cuts between various shots, such that it was very very difficult to concentrate upon any one item in any one of these shots, uh, and so the composition of the shots was just completely lost in this blur of very fast editing, uh, and that's what compounded the darkness of the battle. Now I appreciate that this was an extremely grueling shoot. Um, supposedly this episode took 55 nights to film and all the actors involved, including the extras, would work from about 10 p.m., I think, or thereabouts, until 7 a.m. Wow. Uh, and for 55 straight nights. And um, Ian Glenn, who plays Jorah Mormont, said this was the single most unpleasant experience of his entire professional career. Um, and others have just said, like, this was absolutely horrible. It was brutal. We were all as tired and as zonked as the zombies we were depicting 
by the end, by the wrap of the shoot. And the, the bloke who plays Bran said, well, it was, it was actually okay for me because I got to sit the entire time under a, <laughs> under a, under a blanket. So I, I, and, and, and there was so much work that went into crafting this episode, so much work that went into the choreography of the battle. And I think it's an awful shame that we got to, we got to follow so very little of it because of the way it was lit and shot. And as I understand from some of the articles that have come out since, the, the way in which image compression works when shows like this are streamed via, say, HBO Go, HBO Now, or otherwise digitally, um, it just means that these various algorithms in compressing the size of the stream uh, cause certain details to be lost. And so we were watching the show on an OLED TV in 720p, and even then it was very, very hard to see stuff. I'd be very, very keen to go back and experience the episode again once this season comes out on 4K Blu-ray. I imagine that the it will be a lot cleaner visually. Now, I'm, I'm not sure whether that will be enough to overcome the quick cutting and the weird close-up shots, um, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a significant improvement in the experience of just watching the episode and trying to follow what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Look, we watched it... I, I think Mags and I watched it in 480p, so that was... Yeah, that was <laughs> there was a we we turned the brightness right up, which allowed us to make out some stuff. But it, there was a lot of grain. There was a lot of grain in that at 480p. So it's interesting that you mentioned that like they were saying that you needed to, a high resolution to pick up some of the details. I'd be very interested in understanding if if that actually will end up making a difference. But yeah. Um. Okay. Um. Is there anything else we kind of want to talk about? in relation to this this episode? Mags? Anja? No, I think that's no. summed it up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Onward well, and forward to Cersei Lannister. Yeah. Mm. I, guess, I guess now we just have to look forward to hoping that... Uh, well, hope that they resolve Cersei's. And I'm, I'm... They've got three episodes to do it, so I'm hopeful that they'll be able to resolve the actual Game of Thrones. Um in a satisfactory manner. Um, can I just add that I was very pleased to see in the preview for next episode that Ghost is still alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ghost is now increasingly... <laughs> like, Ghost Watch is now one of my favourite things to do on Game of Thrones. <laughs> so some... will he get a pat? Will, he, will get he get a pat? Exactly. And the fact is that... You know, the fact that he survived suggests that maybe some of the Dothraki survived as well. I don't know. Mm, I think some of them did. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many of them, but... <laughs> um, okay, well, look, thank you so much um, for joining me tonight to talk Game of Thrones, um, and we will all be back okay. next week to talk about Episode 4. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank right. you. Ciao.